Welcome everyone to another episode of my podcast and today is no different. I'm always delighted to have uh, guests on and today I have the awesome uh, Ted McKenna. Uh, Ted is the co-author of The uh, Jolt Effect and founding partner of DCM uh, Insights. Uh, this is going to be a good one. I've known Ted for a while. You've met Ted in Weybridge train station, not train station, by <laughs> Weybridge train station when we met for the first time. Almost that was a great spot. Yeah, seven months ago now, um, and uh, we chatted all all, all all things sales and sales enablement, professional services, and a bit of jolt. And I wanted to get Ted on to uh, share what this. Uh, book is all about which is described by dan heath as this book will spark a transformation in the way we sell but before we get into that ted i always start with a who what why when where and then let's uh see what rabbit hole we go down on uh, on this one sure yeah well thank, thanks for having me on alex and and uh appreciate the opportunity to, to talk a little bit about uh, the jolt effect and customer indecision uh, i'm a researcher uh worked a long time with with matt dixon uh, going back to our days, along with Rory Channer, so three co-founders of DCM Insights, um, all three of us worked at a company called CEB, or Corporate Executive Board, which is now part of Gardner. So I've been studying sales and customer experience for you know 20 years uh, or so, um, and always just really fascinated with demand generation and how uh, buying is evolving and how the best salespeople are, are responding. So Going back to the early days uh, at CEB, where we sort of were looking into the challenger sale and and kind of what was going on with highly informed buyers and how the best sellers were were evolving there, um, and spent some time in both research advisory over there. Then did a stint in professional services. Uh, did spend three or four years uh, for Russell Reynolds Associates, mm-hmm. which is an executive search and talent advisory uh, company. Um, helping them uh, in their sort of board and leadership uh, advisory type businesses. Then Matt and I went over to Tether, um, which is a, Tether's a, a machine learning um, AI company that studies conversations um, and specifically in kind of the sales and customer experience arena. And that's where we ended up doing this very, very large scale study, two and a half million sales calls in total that we, um, towards the end of our, our time there, that we engaged in and that that spawned the book, uh, The Jolt Effect. Um, which is a sort of big, big study around customer decision and how the best salespeople are responding. Um, so from there, we launched uh, DCM Insights and and off to the races. And 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 here we are. So uh, you analyzed two. So I heard that correctly. Two and a half million sales calls. Wow. That's um, right. In any particular industries, were focus was that on? No, all over. So it, it was. Uh, it just so happened, by the way, that this was kind of right at the beginning of the pandemic, which for society, of course, was quite terrible. But for us as researchers, it afforded us a really interesting opportunity because all of a sudden conversations that typically happen outside of our purview, mm-hmm. you know, in offices, coffee shops around the world were being or taking place on Zoom, you know, or or chorus or gong and are recorded and we can then analyze those uh, at scale we 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 uh went very wide and broad in terms of the industries and regions and types of sales that we went to analyze because indecision is a very human problem and we want to understand how it affects all sorts of decisions and all sorts of people from decisions that are very quick you know you're calling in to replace a part you know for a warehouse all the way through to decisions that take months or years of time so we really kind of try to get as broad as we could. 
the modern age of technology. Scary in some respects, but I also think you know, <laughs> on the pro service side of things, and we'll get into this maybe. We're, we're the good side. We're the good yeah, side. The good side. The good side. Um, you know, I think it's fascinating in terms of the whole conversational intelligence piece, and I, for me, I think that's still a big untapped area in the pro service space that's not really mm-hmm. um, not being tapped into at all. Maybe we can get into that. So you analyzed two and a half million kind of sales calls. Did you, did you know what you were looking for to start with, or was it like let's just let's see what what happens? <laughs> Well, it's a good question. So, uh, you know, our background and our sort of typical approach to research in general is is called the kind of the lead steer effect. So we're, we commonly look for the best performers and try mm-hmm. to understand what they're doing differently than their peers. So we did build a predictive model mm-hmm. uh, and use that as a way to understand out of all the things in total, we ended up looking at more than 8,000 variables. What are the things that move the dial the most on that predictive model? But what's interesting about studying unstructured audio and uh, an unstructured text as we transcribe that uh, that audio is it is kind of an ocean of information. That's why there are so many variables, 8,000 plus variables, far more than you'd ever have in a survey-based study, for instance, or an or interview-based study or other qualitative uh, methods. And so we had some hypotheses going in as to what, you know, what, what we might find and why, what, why what we're finding is happening, which yeah. is a big part of, of kind of getting from the raw data into the narr- narrative. But for us, I think the, the the big part of the story we really tried to zero in on were the losses. So we spent a lot of time working, uh, thinking about wins. You know, what are the things that help us to win more business, win more deals and so forth. But where we saw what happening is a lot more losses than we expected, especially in situations where it felt like things were going pretty well. The buyer seemed pretty happy. The seller was doing the things you'd hoped that they were doing and we were still losing. That caught our attention. And that's kind of where the study then uh, kind of took off from there. And I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I can't even begin to fathom how you managed to deal with, let alone two and a half million sales calls with 8,000 variables. So how, how was this done from a, without giving you a secret source, I guess, from a technical perspective, how do you actually go about even doing this? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the, it starts, there's a... a one of the data scientists, the, the primary data scientist we work with, his name is Tom Shepard, brilliant guy. He built this proprietary math solver. So he had this huge way to, to crunch a whole bunch of very complex uh, data and math. And then it came to us in this giant, humongous spreadsheet uh, that, that you know took up half the memory on my, on my uh, laptop uh, and shut things down whenever I sort of opened it up. Um, but you know, the, part of the reason we were looking at so many variables is because What's fascinating about conversational uh, data, and this this sounds like an obvious thing, but it becomes very powerful when you go to study this type of information, which is that you have both sides of the conversation. So you have insight into both what the seller is doing and saying, Mm -hmm. behaviors are exhibiting, skills they're using, and so forth. But then also on the buyer side, how they're responding, you know, Mm -hmm. the emotions that are displaying, the objections they're providing, and that back and forth exchange, the sequences end up mattering quite a bit, you know, you, Alex, uses a skill, buyer responds in this way, you come back this way. That exchange of information tells us a whole bunch about what's working and what's not mm-hmm. and the effect that different behaviors have on the sort of buyer emotion as they go through the, the conversation. And will you, uh, and we will, don't worry, listeners, we will get into the, we'll get into the kind of the, um, the output of, uh, of all of this, but were you interested, were you able to um, pick up things like, tone emotion because you mentioned you tran- you transcribed it and of course the written word doesn't really convey 
most of the time tone and you know sarcasm can be a different you know difficult thing to, yeah. to so how are we able to you know account for for the the subtler side of conversation right good question i, I think you could argue the opposite too that the tonal um uh, sentiment which is typically taken from the audio source itself okay. also has a fair amount of false positives you know just because the person is speaking louder doesn't necessarily mean that they're angry. They could just yeah. be in a loud coffee shop, you know, mm -hmm. for instance. Um, so we tend to rely on, on syntax, so on, on explicit mentions of things. The way we kind of get around some of those implicit um, uh, meanings, you know, the things that they're conveying between the lines, if you will, yeah. um, it's through the way in which we categorize and classify data. So going far, far, far beyond keywords you know, this person said the word frustrated or this person said the word uncertain, but rather building categories and classifications that in some some cases have thousands of different ways that somebody might express a given emotion. Yeah. And that takes years of of training of the of the model and of the machines. And so we were fortunate to be working at the time and, and take advantage of <clears throat> that technology. Um, but that's so they built this sort of library of mm -hmm. different emotions, different um, ways in which that the buyer's expressing uh, different uh, uh, sort of things that they're feeling as they go through the, the conversation. And we use that category, that, that sort of library of categories as a way to represent both the explicit and in many ways, the implicit things that they're feeling. Absolutely fascinating. My brain is is hurting already. I knew this is going to be, all my podcasts are always good, but this is particularly, uh, particularly intriguing. So what what were the kind of the key themes in terms of the outcomes that you discovered around customer indecision? Yeah. So the, I mean, the main thrust of of the study is that um, there are a couple different. So, so there are more losses than we expected, and what happens in situations in which no decision becomes um, a problem, which in our study we found forty to sixty percent of deals ending in no decision. Uh, what what the study found and what Broadly speaking, when you just go to study psychology and behavioral economics, which is part of our um, our study as well, is just to go and read decades worth of work that you know great psychologists and behavioral economists have done. Is that um, there are different types of losses that we as humans uh, think about and weigh on us as individuals. Some of them have to do with actions that we don't take advantage of, that we don't do. Now, those are errors of omission. So. You know, the example we'll often provide is, and this is maybe outdated at the, at the moment, is um, is if you if you a couple of years ago had not invested, your friend had invested in crypto and you had not, yeah. and then they had this big giant house on some island in the Mediterranean and you got super, uh, super jealous. Uh, now you're probably maybe feeling pretty good about that decision. So maybe an outdated analogy, but that's an error of omission, right? I didn't do something as a consequence I missed out. Yeah. And for decades, sellers have been taking advantage of that that loss aversion, right? That was what psychologists would call it is. Um, Daniel Kahneman uh, and Amos Tversky are most famous for uh, prospect theory and loss aversion. And that's why we use this fe the fear of missing out mm -hmm. technique as a way to drive change, to drive urgency. You're trying to get them to feel like, hey, if you don't go down this path, if you don't make this change, you're going to miss out on all sorts of return. You're going to miss out on uh, the, the ways in which your competitors are going to outpace you. Um, and so we use these 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 appeals to to scare them into into purchasing in those situations. But there's a second type of loss that really weighs on buyers in particular in these situations, which is an error of commission, which is that I did do something. So mm -hmm. maybe in the past I made this purchase. It went horribly wrong. 
I have lots of regret as a consequence in part because I got blamed. So there's a very personal aspect to that. And so what we found, the basic gist of the study is that um, there are two types of losses and two types of techniques that, uh, that, that sellers need, two playbooks. One is sort of a FOMO appeal. Mm-hmm. And that FOMO appeal is really uh, successful and really um, uh, necessary when you're trying to break the customer status quo, when you're trying to get them to think that change is necessary and urgent and so forth. But the second playbook is really about FOMU, which is the fear of messing up, because that's what weighs on buyers. Once they've decided, I think I want this change, I think I might need this change, but what if I mess up? And that playbook is quite different because that the fear of messing up, you're looking to kind of reduce the fear of the purchase at that point. Yeah. So um, the whole thrust of the JOLT playbook then, JOLT is an acronym um, that stands kind of for the four key behaviors we found that sellers use as a way to reduce that fear of messing up. Um, it, it sort of helps to, to both identify the level of indecision and then treat that uh, as you kind of go through a sales process. So it's the, and so the indecision is that I've done this once before, it didn't work out, I got blamed, therefore I'm not going to do anything because irrespective of I'm talking to five vendors potentially, I'm just worried that if I get this wrong again, then I'm going to get fired or whatever it might be. Yeah, your 10% discount doesn't matter to me too much if I might get fired for making this this decision, okay. right? And that's over and above how much I might want to make that purchase or feel like I need to make the purchase or feel like you as the supplier are super unique and I can't buy this from anyone else. Mm-hmm. I still worry that I might go down this path and things will go wrong and I might mess up. And we we all can identify with this individually too, right? Because I certainly can. You know, this is a reason why you know, I, I tell stories all the time about things that I, I want to buy, like the latest example of the Remarkable tablet, that the marketing team at, at Remarkable has like this love-hate relationship with me because I click on every single ad for that thing, uh, but I never purchase it because I just, I, I think it's just, as soon as I get it, I'm like, I, at first I'm, I'm tempted because I'm going to be so focused. I'm going to take great notes, right? But I, I just have this sense that as soon as I buy it, I'm going to regret it, you know? And why? Because I've done that before because I've bought things before and then not use them. And so that weighs on us individually as consumers. You have to assume, and research bears this out, that this also affects B2B buyers who are spending other people's money. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely logical in terms of uh, in terms of that. And so what does, and before we get into what does Jolt actually um, mean? You said 40 to 60% of the deals that you analyzed resulted in no sale through no decision but you also mentioned that you were surprised that there was a higher loss uh rate overall so was that a loss that could be a loss they went with someone else or was that 40 to 60 part of that that is that counts as a loss as well going with somebody else would be not part of that 40 to 60 percent so call it call it a third of the time you might choose a competitor or some other uh, provider in that situation or you could decide to do nothing at all and part of that nothing at all could be I just prefer what I'm doing today. So yeah. your your case for change wasn't compelling enough. Mm-hmm. And then part of it also can be about I'm stuck. I, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure with Pat which path to go down. And so better and safer to just wait it out. Yeah. What we found actually is that those that that second reason that that indecision portion of no decision is actually the bigger reason why deals end up in no decision. It's 56% versus 44%. So a preference for the st- the status quo, you know, of course, has been and remains a very big reason why 
people decide to do nothing because they just like what they're doing or they like their provider or change is hard and annoying. And so I just rather would not. That's different and separate from, I just, I'm stuck. I don't know which path to go down. And there, there's a bunch of research about why that happens and what specific fears they have in those situations. But those are two distinct things. Okay. So with regards to then Jolt, you said that was an acronym for kind of what, what the, 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 the good, the good salespeople, the, the, the people who are top of their game, I guess, or kind of can un, unpick this. Should we uh, kind of break that down as to, for the, for the listeners to understand yeah. maybe, maybe you're those listening, you're stuck in a situation at the moment where you're, you're in indecision. So, you know, hopefully Ted can share a bit of light to help you potentially un, unlock the, uh, the FOMO as it were, rather than the FOMO. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. So there, there are kind of four key behaviors in the study. It's also a double meaning, of course, because what we're trying to do here is to jolt a customer into action or kind of mm-hmm. jolt them past their indecision. Um, but the, the four key behaviors, the first one is called judging the level of indecision. And it's really meant to help understand size, measure the depth and breadth of that indecision. Um, and then the other three are meant really to kind of help treat that indecision as you think about the specific fears that that person or that company might be having at that moment. Yeah. Starting with judging level of indecision, um, this is about making sure that we understand the depth and breadth of indecision, both because we want to incorporate that level of indecision, that buyer's ability to make a decision Mm -hmm. into our view as to how uh, good that opportunity is. You know, should I keep pursuing this? Should I prioritize this? Is this likely to come in this quarter, next quarter, uh, or not? Even if on paper they're a great fit, but then also using that information that I'm gleaning as I understand more about the source and the depth of that indecision to understand the type of problem, the type, the type of fear that that buyer might be hung up on, which tells me a little bit more about the playbook I then need to use as I go to help reduce the indecision that that buyer might be having. That's really good. Well, I was going to say in terms of so on, on that, there's a bit of, I think, self-reflection then on the, the seller in terms of, is this worth even going for in terms of on paper, it looks really good, but actually it's just never going to happen. So that's not, that's not even really start the process, but and forgive me if you're going to get, if you were going to answer this anyway, um, how does one then kind of ask the questions or start to kind of, get the, yeah. the 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 person to admit they're kind of in a state of indecision because again that's not something that somebody necessarily would admit to that they can't actually right. make a decision because that's a sign of weakness right they might not even be aware of it right <laughs> and yeah to your point perhaps my sort of brand as an, as an executive or as a leader um is in fact of being a pretty decisive person so you know, unlikely to come out and just tell you hey by the way I'm terrible at making decisions <laughs> you know, just that doesn't happen. Um, so there's a little bit of active listening that goes on. Um, and uh, the trick there is knowing what to listen for, you know, understanding the different dynamics that drives indecision and what that might sound like when you hear and when signs of indecision are kind of popping up. There are, of course, plenty of times because our data would tell you that 87% of opportunities have either moderate or high levels of indecision. So mm-hmm. it is kind of everywhere, far more uh, common than you might think. Um, that doesn't mean a deal can't go through, of course, but uh, that but often it's it's there more more than you think. And so um, because of that, you can't just hope and assume that because I'm not hearing it, that it's not there. Mm-hmm. And so the best salespeople will uh, flip into more active measures to 
understand and surface that indecision. The analogy that we'll, we use with um, with people in our in our course is if you think about sonar and think about like a battleship that's looking for a submarine, you know, underneath the, the surface of the water, when they don't hear anything, but they suspect something's there, they, they start sending out what they call pings and listening for the echo back. Right? And that ping is, is meant to understand, you know, is this a whale? Is this a, you know, is this a rock, you know, or is this a submarine and how, and how deep is it? How fast is it moving and where is it? And I'm gauging that based on the echo back. It's kind of the same way that high performers gauge indecision, you know, in those moments. The ping is essentially the seller articulating the fear that they think that buyer is experiencing at that moment. Okay. Just kind of getting the elephant, you know, out into the room. Yeah. You know, Alex, I'm sensing that that you might not be totally sure exactly which path to go down here. Do I have that right? Might be one example of a ping. Um, so it's different than a question. This isn't about discovery, understanding their needs, or really trying to get the source of that potential fear. Done so, of course, in a constru constructive and, and professional way. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. That's uh, I'm reflecting on you know even conversations that we're having at the moment where there's probably a person that is in that indecision um, indecision mode. So I might even <laughs> use that exact uh, that exact phrase to see if we can. Uh, we can tease something um something out so once yep. once they've they've started to so let's say you start to um uh, sense your pings and your echoes or like that analogy yep. that actually this person is in a state of indecision how do yep. you then get them to a point where they they make a decision one way or the other yeah so of course that depends a little bit on what you're sensing is the purchase fear that they're related. So there's a number of drivers that make us individually just from based on our personality yep. uh, into people, right? And and so you have to have, be aware of that. There's not a lot you can do to control that or change mm -hmm. that. Of course, as a salesperson, but you want to understand it so you can under you know, gauge the, again the the ability for that person or that company to make a decision. But, but specifically within the context of a purchase, there are three specific fears that buyers um, typically struggle with uh, about messing up. And each one of the next three behaviors aligns with one of those fears. So the, the first one is around options overload or choice overload. So buyers struggle with making trade-offs about which, which choice do I make about this implementation path or that implementation path, this configuration or that configuration, this uh, integration or that integration, Every company's got dozens of options of ways you can construct that deal. Contract length, um, of course, is a common one mm -hmm. as well. So all those terms and conditions that you're looking away become options that that buyer feels like, I'm going to make a, a choice that I'm going to immediately regret and get blamed for it. So safer for me just to do nothing. The, the antidote to that, what the best salespeople are doing is flipping it from asking that buyer, what do they want to do? To telling them what they kind of should do. So making a firm and personal recommendation in those situations can be very powerful, particularly because part of what you're trying to do with that buyer is shift a little bit of the perceived blame for that or the potential blame for it from that person, from that seller, or sorry, from the buyer over to the seller. So you're accepting a little bit of blame, mm -hmm. not unlike, you know, when you go into a restaurant and ask for a recommendation from a waiter or a waitress, how much relief it provides to you when you've got this giant menu of lots of stuff that they to really make a smart recommendation of a couple different options based on kind of what you're looking for uh, in those situations. So that's the that's the first key skill as a way to kind of reduce that that overwhelming feeling that buyers have when there's just too much choice, too many options, 
and they're not sure which path to go down because they both look kind of right. Okay. The second okay. big fear that buyers have uh, with respect to a purchase is if the first one's about options overload, the next one's really about information overload. You know, there's so much information out there for a buyer to understand, you know, what suppliers um, they, they could potentially purchase from, the problems they can go and solve. Um, and they can research, of course, a lot of this on their own. It's the, because there's so much abundance of information that, in fact, creates this paralysis. So they feel like because there's so much out there, it's on me as the buyer to be the educated buyer to make sure that I become the expert. Uh, and, you know, it's on me as the person who's advocating for the solution and making the business case for it uh, to make sure that I know all the ins and outs, to make sure that I'm not caught by surprise, that my company's not caught by surprise later on about information that I could have known prior to making this purchase, but I didn't. And so I want to make sure I dot all the I's, cross all the T's before I'm comfortable and feel like I'm making an informed purchase decision. So what the best sellers are doing in those situations is finding ways to kind of limit that exploration of the purchase to reasonable levels rather than excessive levels. Right? There's a number of different ways they can do it, but it kind of boils down to uh, two factors. One, how much does that buyer trust that seller and that organization? You know, do they have their best interests in mind? Are they trying to oversell them? Are they making overpromising them in those situations? Uh, because they need to be able to trust that that person knows where this is going to go, right? That they're doing their homework for them. So the buyer themselves doesn't feel like they have to go and do it, which brings me to the second piece of this, which is an expert. So they have to be both a trusted and be an expert in that process. Again, such that the buyer feels like they themselves don't be, have to become the expert, but rather I can rely on the expertise of that seller to look out for me, to look around corners, to watch out for those surprises on my behalf. And again, provides relief for those buyers in that situation. And then finally, a third big uh, sort of purchase fear that buyers have about messing up. So if the first one is options overload, second one is information overload. The last one really is about expectations overload. These are the buyers that, that fear that, you know, no matter how many assurances that you've provided to them, you know, no matter how many case studies that you've given them, reference calls they've done, they're going to be the one exception, right? They're going to be the buyer who doesn't really get what they're paying for. Um, and when this goes wrong, and they've had things go wrong in the past, they're going to get blamed. You know, it's their name on the dotted line. It's their name on the DocuSign. And so they need uh, more assurances and uh, lots more um, uh, you know, information about ROI potential and uh, ROI, you know, ROI realization before they're willing to move forward. So the best sellers in those situations are really good and diligent about setting very proper expectations with their buyer about those about, about the outcomes, right? So grounding them in very practical, very achievable, very believable outcomes. So it feels like you can do this, right? Because there's an interesting wrinkle about this outcome uncertainty. It's, it's easy for the seller to assume that the reason they keep asking for that updated ROI model is that they don't believe that your thing is valuable, right? right? Like, well, they, they must not believe it's, it's, it's valuable because they're looking for more proof. But what actually, it's more commonly about their, their confidence that they can actually achieve those outcomes, right? This is the buyer who worries like, you know what? We mess things up all the time. We can't have nice things. We know this, right? So it's, it's our fault that these outcomes are uncertain, not your fault. And so we've got to find ways to set their expectations that you can do this. Mm -hmm. Like companies do this all the time. This is something we're very, very good at and do every day with, with buyers. There are of course times that you then have to get a little more formal and provide 
an actual some sort of safety net, some sort mm -hmm. of protection on that decision. And, you know, that doesn't have to be, you know, back out clauses or cancellation clauses. Um, it could be something as simple as a mutual value plan, um, even professional services, which is counterintuitive because now you're spending more money, but you're now contractually obligated to kind of walk that walk with them. So there's a number of ways you can go to offer that safety net. Um, but anyway, that, that's kind of the, the three big uh, skills that we see top sellers using mm -hmm. to address and align with each one of those big purchase fears that buyers have. And is that those skills then, is that the O and the L and the, the T of jolt to kind of go, exactly. go yep. through? Okay. Offer recommendation, limit the expiration, take risk off the table. Okay. So we start with judge the indecision. Yep. Offer, limit, and then take risk off the, um, yeah. off the judge level of indecision, yep. offer a firm recommendation, uh, limit the exploration to healthy and reasonable levels, uh, and taking risk off the table for those buyers. And with, I'm trying to, were you able to uh, identify any particular kind of sales methodologies that maybe, sellers were using in terms of um uh, in terms of how they went about that and then if you were part two to the question was there any kind of methodology that came out uh, over and above others or was it all if you could identify them or was it, were they all pretty similar yeah that well so methodology plays into this but not in the way you'd expect right. so would you find any any methodologies out there that specifically addressed indecision and mm -hmm. helped to overcome that the the way that sellers have been taught to use methodology for years, though, um, has actually made things worse, not better. Right. Typically, when um, a salesperson has has confronted indecision, you know, think about the situation here. It's a buyer who is kind of progressing through the sales cycle. You're hearing lots of positive things. They like your your solution. They're asking for more calls. More people are getting involved months might go by with all these different visits. And then all of a sudden they start to hem and haw. They start to backtrack. They start to go dark. You can't get them on the phone. That's what this looks, looks like kind of in practice. And most sellers have been taught for decades that the reason that thing is stalling out is because they don't want it enough. They don't need it. Enough. You haven't done enough to persuade them because mm -hmm. if you had done enough to persuade them, and they wanted it enough, all these little concerns that they're having here, all the, the things that seem to be hanging them up towards the end shouldn't really be a problem. They just don't want it enough. And so the tools that they're being given in those moments is to relitigate the tools they already used to persuade them. You know, don't you want it more? Don't you understand how much you need this? Yeah. And then sit on the pain. You know, here's all the pain. Here's all the bad stuff that will happen if you don't move down that path. And what we now know is it, it's it's not, it's pretty ineffective. In fact, it backfires eighty four percent of the time when buyers do that. And the the re, the basic reason for that is you're taking an already pretty terrified buyer mm -hmm. and you're trying to use a bunch of things that are just trying to scare them even more. <laughs> now there's a there's a there's a time and place for that, right? Because again, you have to overcome that indifference battle. You've got to get them to care enough about that change, and that is about dialing up the fear of things that will happen if you don't move down that path. But there's also this second playbook that is absolutely necessary. You've got to dial down the fear of the purchase once you cross that, that barrier. And so that's where we find most methodologies out there sort of insufficient. They're necessary. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, pick your, whatever preferred methodology might be, you know, mm -hmm. challenger, uh, spiced medic, 
you know, uh, what name your name your favorite methodology out there? Spin, yeah. of course. Um, all of them, gap selling, all of them are are different versions of trying to get that buyer to want it more, to need it more, you know, and drive urgency on that sale. Absolutely necessary, but insufficient. We also need the second playbook as a way to overcome indecision, and that's what Joel does. Fascinating, fascinating in terms of um how how a, a a global situation presented this opportunity i guess to your point to actually kind of un um uh unpick this and and in any as as part of the research were were there um any signals from was there any difference in kind of industry from the buyer perspective or was it were the fundamentals pretty much the the same there weren't a lot of differences by re we often get, you know, regionally is are there differences, yeah. you know, does the buyer in Egypt struggle with this in the same way that the buyer in, in Dallas, Texas does? The answer is yes, largely because again, we're all sort of human dealing yeah. with the same, same type of emotions. We also didn't see very many differences on from an industry perspective. The, the place where we saw slight differences are more in terms of the complexity of the decision itself. You know, so in situations if you're buying like insurance or you know, think about like, you know, a, a maintenance person who has to, you know, fulfill and, and, and um, you know, uh, get a part for that they've got to go and replace. It's a pretty quick decision. It might be a 30 minute, you know, conversation you're having with the salesperson versus a month long type of decision. In those situations, the main differences we saw was more about the frequency of which the seller might use certain tactics, but the power of them you know, the value of those techniques and more importantly, the emotion that buyer felt in those situations were quite similar. Um, so again, didn't see all that differences. And I think, again, the, the reason for that is humans are humans, right? We're all sort of wired that this, you know, at core wired in kind of the same way. And we all have this fear of messing up that we've got to, to overcome uh, in order to, to feel like we're, we're making sort of a fully confident and, and we're comfortable with this purchase. And uh, you having worked at Russell Reynolds and me having spent five years with Michael Page International when humans are trying to sell humans into, into roles is probably one of the most intriguing insights into the human, the human psychology around all of this. It's a oh, pretty interesting <laughs> Yeah, the talent markets are always interesting. This is kind of a two-sided market, right? You've got to deal with both the fear of messing up for the person hiring and the person potentially take, taking the job. You know, <laughs> Those are both sort of buying decisions, if you will, if you think about it. Uh, I remember the days before email, the dread of going into the office on a Monday morning and then, or whether, you know, when you had email on, on cell phones and stuff and the dread of going into the office and getting that voicemail or the phone call from the, the employee going, they haven't turned up for day one of the job. It's oh, like, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, yeah, that that's FOMO on display from day one, I guess. <laughs> um, absolutely fascinating so um with regards to the jolt effect is 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 this becoming is this a methodology that people can learn and adopt and you know put into existing method methodologies yeah I, I guess i suppose it is it becomes a, a a method if you will in the sense that it's a bundle of behaviors that we know work and um you know help you specifically in these situations to overcome indecision what's nice about jolt effect though is that it kind of snaps on top of whatever your existing methodology is. Yeah. So because most other methodologies don't really address indecision, they don't look to help you reduce fear of messing up. Um, that also means that 
jolt effect isn't going to conflict with anything that they've been taught, right? Because the, the, that methodology still is very applicable because you got to find ways to overcome that indifference to get them to believe that the status quo is worth changing. So jolt effect might, it, it kind of snaps on top of. Um, yeah. And so a lot of, uh, we work with a lot of teams that either already feel really good you know about the the skills or their 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 methods of their um of their team on the status quo piece, um, or they're struggling in particular right now with indecision. And that, you know, of course, in certain circles over the last you know six to twelve months, yep. budget environments being what they are, macro economy being what it is, you know, indecision has been very top of mind for organizations. Yeah, and deals slowing down, and more people getting involved, and and <laughs> and, yes, and exactly. Well, you know, you bring up a good point, right? Because there are also a bunch of secular reasons why indecision is growing. I mean, if you think about those those purchase fears, options overload, where name me a place where there's less options these days. Every place has more options, not less, right? Information overload. Can't turn off the internet, right? And there's going to be more and more information, you know, all the time, especially in the hands of buyers. They're empowered to go and find information, third-party reports, Google, you know, uh, LinkedIn, tons of different places you can go and research on your own. And then, you know, outcome uncertainty is an interesting one too, because in many ways, suppliers are to blame for the buyers getting uh, expectations too high in those situations, because if you think about go Google different suppliers, and I bet you you'll find one word all over the place, which is transformation. Yeah. I'm gonna we're gonna transform this, we're gonna transform that. That's very, very tempting, but it's also kind of hard and thorny and difficult, and for buyers ultimately kind of scary because things do mess up, right? Things do go wrong. There's lots of variables and dependencies that that come into play with transformation. So again that doesn't seem like something that's going to end anytime soon. So you could easily argue that indecision, which has been around forever, but is now kind of on the rise more and more. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a fun, fun times out there for those. In, in <laughs> well, the good news is we have some answers, right? You know, so we, we, before we, uh, I guess it's, it's both bad news and the fact that we've, we understand the size of the problem yeah. now and that could be somewhat depressing, but we also have some solutions. So hopefully okay. that's helpful to, to the problem. And, um, one final question before I let you go. So you, you're the, so let's back up a bit. I'm now starting to see the right, you know, some of the platforms you, you mentioned, um, the rise of um, through Gen, Gen AI, I of course can't not mention that, but kind of live in-person coaching for the sales person. So they're having their call over Zoom or Gong or Refract or whatever yeah. it might be. And then these platforms are listening in, I guess real time, and then starting to make, and we're early stages in this, and kind of the the conversational intelligence piece, kind of I guess kind of phase two, if you will. The, oh, they're hearing this, therefore you should start to say this or think about um, uh, think about that. So with the model that you have created, is that is there a roadmap where that could then be plugged into some of these technology platforms to kind of give that in real time coaching? Yeah, so possibly. I mean the it's a complex um, issue on a number of fronts, right? So if you think about conversational AI as being uh, a cousin uh, or, or maybe a sister or brother of conversational intelligence, because it's, to your point, tends to be more of a uh, applicable sort of in the moment 
um, uh, you know, even sort of uh, alive type type coaching. Yeah. Um, that's a complex thing to get right. You know, you don't want the seller to come across as overly scripted. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, a lot of times you're dealing with, especially in these bigger deals, very, you know, uh, tenured folks, very senior individuals. Um, and then you also run into things like, can you even record like a key account manager? Are they really, yeah. how many like meetings in their offices can you record? So there's, there's some complexities there and you got to kind of work, work through, you know, how that might, uh, that might work. But I do think in general, if you, if you sort of think about the, the promise of gen AI and generative, um, models like that, um, I think the, the, in my view, the best near-term likelihood is that it helps with things like role plays and right. it helps with things like practice, you know, and you, and, it's, and you get a better sense for like the real way in which a buyer might respond in those situations. And that does, does make a huge difference in training and coaching, you know, in these situations. Forever, we've known that having a safe place to practice, um, which sounds like an obvious thing, but but in, in sales training, of course, that's kind of gold when you can get that. You know, we've heard stories of people hiring ex-customers, you know, retired customers to come in, you know, for a day. Imagine having that at scale, you know, um, from a machine perspective and being able to, you know, spend an hour a day or, or over the weekend, being able to practice in those situations, handle objections, deal with some of that fear, I think it'd be very powerful. It makes, makes uh, total sense. And Ted, if people want to kind of, um, obviously they can download the book, they can buy the book, they can get the book to um, uh, to read it. But uh, are you, you're, so you say you're now supporting organizations and teams and actually kind of putting them through a, a job program. So where can I point them to kind of learn more about that if the listeners are interested? Yeah, jolteffect.com. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, ch check out the book. Um, we were just talking before we started the, of course, you got the audio book, you've got the regular book, just go to find it on, you know, anywhere you can find, uh, your, your, your yeah. Jolt Effect. um, but, uh, but yeah, jolteffect.com. Um, there's, there's some free tools on there too, that we've, uh, cool. we've uh, provided there and coaching and, um, uh, call scoring and, and whatnot. Uh, so check that out. But then, yeah, we've also got a full self-guided course for those that are so inclined to, Kind of get a little bit more detail that the study there's only so much we could fit in the book and so we, and we kept doing a little bit of research so there's a whole bunch of kind of bonus skills and bonus material in our course hundreds of, of videos of matt matt and i kind of working through these different skills we also work directly with teams um to kind of help move down the, the learning path um uh, keynotes uh, uh, presentations workshops uh, things like that with direct teams we also have a series of partners I should mention as well in situations when companies, let's, you mentioned methodologies, yeah. you know, Challenger uh, Inc. Is, is one of our licensed partners. Um, so if a company is, is, you know, sort of a challenger shop, if you will, and really um, have, have gone uh, sort of whole hog at, at Challenger, uh, or they just like that team, they're a great solution to be working with. Um, Winning by Design is another one in sort of the SaaS recurring revenue space. Again, for companies that are already kind of a spice shop and they want to implement Jolt, they're a licensed partner on that front as well. And so lots of opportunities to kind of get involved depending upon what you uh, what you might be looking for. But when in doubt, just shoot us a note, go to jolteffect.com and we'll try to direct you in the right, right place. Perfect. The link is in the uh, down here if you're watching the video and it's in the, uh, the body of the podcast if you're listening on whatever platform you are listening on. Ted, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure as always, my friend. Look forward to see you again in person. Hopefully, either I'll be on that side of the pond or you'll be on this side of the pond. And uh, thank you. It's been very, very uh, insightful. 
I may well listen to it on the Audible, even though I told you I don't do that when we were in, in the green room. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, to my listeners, as always, thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you want to be on the podcast, you know what to do. If you recommend somebody to be on the podcast, you know what to do. Um, but I am going to end it there on a very dark and stormy afternoon in SW19 London. Until next week, uh, wherever you are, um, have fun, stay safe. I don't know what we say these days. Anyway, be well. <laughs> Cheers, Ted. Thanks. Take care.